Welcome back, friends and listeners. It has been a long time, too long, since we've released a new episode of Aftermath, and Rhett, Warren, Willem, and I are so glad to say that we are back. Due to some pretty crazy work schedules and the global pandemic that's impacting all of us, we encountered a bit of a delay, but we are back. We hope that all of you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy, and we also hope that you've been able to find just a little bit of an escape from the craziness that is 2020 by listening to Aftermath. We're very pleased to present to you episode 21, continuing the saga of the Phoenix Project and the exploration of the surface of the Earth. As always, you can find and connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Group, and of course on YouTube by searching Fire Pit Creative Group. Without further ado, please enjoy the next episode of Aftermath. And stay safe, stay healthy, and stay curious. Bath and Cuddy sat outside Dr. Charles Fox's office. They waited for engineer Donna Chang, who had been ordered to visit the psychiatrist. Cuddy couldn't help but notice that John was pensive, apparently deep in thought. The law enforcement officer sought to break the tension. You know, the longer we're here, away from the surface, the less time we have to help those people. Distracted, Bath turned to Cuddy. What? Oh. Yeah, I guess you're right. Bath thought about the promise the Major made to the scavengers living under the river near Manhattan to exchange canned goods for medicine and supplies that might help Sally, an ailing prostitute they encountered while exploring the surface. At least we know we can survive in the green stream more than eight hours, Bath said. Seems like every time we take two steps forward, we take two steps back, Cuddy finished for him. John turned and looked at Dr. Fox's closed door. You think she's okay? Cuddy leaned forward and shrugged. You're the neuroscientist, not me. All I know is she's been acting erratic lately, and I'm not sure what the hell she was doing to the machines in the lab while the general was in the green stream. Bath clasped his hands in front of him. The notebooks, he said, referring to the small red journals spread out on the laboratory conference table. She said it was a code. Something her father left behind for her. They must have been instructions, Cuddy said, 
a way to enhance the technology. Bath nodded. What do you... Well, what does the Law Division know about Chang's father? Cuddy shrugged again, then sheepishly looked away. He had been so eager to be part of the mission that he did little to research the backgrounds of his counterparts. He took everything he was told by Project Administrator Daniel Devenu and Colonel Dana Marsh as truth and sought little more. Maybe General Castro knows more, John said, staring down the long gray corridor between them. Yeah, but seems like he would have mentioned something, Cuddy said, scratching the back of his head where his hair had grown longer, coarser. Then again, Castro's memory of the past isn't perfect. No, it isn't. John was distracted, thinking of his own past, his father, the circumstances surrounding Dear Midbath's exile and disappearance. He felt hollow, vulnerable. Knowing it was out of character for him, he turned to the Major, asking, Cuddy, what... what do you remember about your father? I mean, you know, besides his career in law enforcement. The Major's dark eyes widened. He wasn't used to speaking about personal things, and was unsure how much he trusted John Bath with such information. He sat up straight. What do you ask? Bath tilted his head to the side. I've been thinking about my father a lot lately. The fact that he knew the general, and your father. They were all at the UN together. Well, everyone in the project was at the UN together, Cuddy said. It's just a coincidence. No, not that. I mean, about what happened here, in the project. What really happened, and what we were told. Cuddy looked down the hall, then back at Bath. His expression suggested discretion. What do you mean? My father, Dermid, worked in law enforcement too. I'm not really sure what he did, but... Bath hesitated, wondering for a moment if his experience in the Greenstream and Simulacrum was impacting his memory. He was accused of giving supplies and resources to those in the squalor. He was brought before the Shadow Council, and... We were told he was exiled. Cuddy stiffened a little. He knew this much about Bath's father, but little more. I'm sorry, the Major said plainly. What's your point? Bath looked up and down the hallway, then spoke to Cuddy, lowering his voice. So what if he did violate some absurd ordinance? Resources were plentiful then. Would those in the squalor really need special treatment? And was trial by the council and exile a reasonable punishment for someone who had special skills? Someone who had otherwise been loyal to the council, to his family, to other citizens? Bath's green eyes flared, imploring the dutiful law enforcement officer to reach deeply, think through the argument. Cuddy paused. He could see the professor's anguish and, despite their frequent differences, he did not want to be dismissive. I agree it seems the punishment doesn't fit the crime, the Major said, but those were different times. Maybe, maybe because of how important your father was, the council chose to make a harsh example out of him. You know, so nothing like that happened again. Bath was about to speak, then put his fingers to his mouth. He thought it through. Had his father done something to offend the council? Had his mother, 
Were the faceless, ghost-like leaders of the Phoenix Project punishing his family for their politics on the surface or underground? Maybe the council consulted the computer, Cuddy added, trying to think of any reason the council might have made the correct decision. You know, sometimes, Bath waved a hand. I'm sure they appreciate your loyalty, Major, but it makes no sense. Either my family, my father, and all his colleagues were being lied to then. John glanced around, looking for the pinhole cameras and listening devices used to spy on citizens in the Phoenix Project. Or we're being lied to now. Bath's words hung in the air between them. For a moment, Cuddy's eyes narrowed. Thick, black eyebrows came close together, as if angry or annoyed. Then, to Bath's surprise, the law enforcement officer relented. Okay, John. What are you thinking? John stood. He crossed the corridor to stand in front of Cuddy. I think it's all a lie. I think my father, and maybe yours too, I think they found a way out of this place. Bath spoke earnestly, convicted. Listen, I don't have it all worked out, but there's always been rumors of a hatch, a port. Yeah, yeah, Cuddy nodded dismissively. I know the stories. There's a key somewhere that opens a hatch. Problem is, we don't know if we're under Connecticut, or Greenland, or Siberia. Cuddy mentioned places he had only heard of. Major, what difference does it make if there is life on the surface, if we can survive? Now Cuddy stood to face Bath, his arms folded between them. I guess you make a point. He looked down at Bath, his serious expression suggesting both sincerity and caution. But you know better than to talk about this stuff, John. Even if it were true, and I'm not saying it is, you jeopardize everything we're doing in the laboratory worrying about the past. You want to help the citizens of the project? You want to give dignity to your parents' sacrifice? Fine. But the way isn't in the past. It's going forward. Cuddy looked away from Bath, his tone lowered. Always forward. Then, as if on cue, the sliding door to Dr. Fox's office opened. Chief Engineer Donna Chang stood in the portal. The tall, doe-faced psychiatrist stood behind her. What are you doing here? Chang asked the two men. I was sent to escort you to the laboratory, Cuddy said. He turned to Bath. He tagged along. Chang looked at Bath as if for the first time. John's eyes retreated a little, but he stood his ground. Dr. Fox forced a smile at the Major in Bath. Donna, if you change your mind about anything we discussed, you'll let me know, of course. Without looking back, Chang spoke. I won't change my mind, Doctor, but thank you for your time. Chang walked between Cuddy and Bath, leading the way from the narrow corridor. Project Administrator Danielle Devenu's absence was felt by the others in the laboratory, all except for Donna Chang. The chief engineer had been sanctioned by Devenu for the unauthorized modifications made to the lab's infrastructure, power supplies, conduits, and cabling. John Bath sat at the conference table, two of Chang's red notebooks in hand. The linguist and cryptographer deciphered alternating codes in Chinese. His lips moved, but he made no sound. 
General Benjamin Castro sat in his wheelchair at the center of the room. Major McGillicuddy hovered nearby, anxious, eager to port back into his robot body and continue their adventure into Manhattan. Chief Surgeon Miral Ganaya stood by the transference modules. She studied the rise and fall of dull electrical activity in the gelatinous substance within the coffin-like chamber. To Ganaya's right, Chang flipped a few switches, tapped a keyboard console. Despite the engineer's silence, outwardly projecting ambivalence over recent events, Miral could tell the other woman was anything but calm. Okay, listen up. Castro's voice broke through the quiet. Ganaya and Cuddy turned to face the leader. The mission objective from here is simple, but may be complicated by the time between our last experiences on the surface. Cuddy raised his head, signaling to Bath to pay attention. John put the red notebooks down slowly and glanced up at Castro. The general continued. When I was last in the green stream, I was in mid-conversation with some scavengers in Brooklyn Park. I'm sure in the time between, they've deduced my body as robotic, maybe taken it apart. Maybe. General, Ganaya interjected gently. Uh, by all reliable information we have, your simulacrum is still intact. Chang nodded, but did not look at the others. We're getting a strong signal. And if they have tampered with your body, it is still functional, Ganaya added. Castro swallowed hard and nodded, wishing he could stand. He wanted to walk to Kanaya and Chang, thank them for their efforts, for making the excursion to the surface possible. He wanted to embrace Mural, confess to her that he was the father she never knew. He longed to apologize for his failure, but was unsure if his grown daughter would forgive him. Would knowing this fact free her, or would it complicate their obligations more? I'll go into the green stream first, Castro explained. I'll have to find some way to explain myself. How do you propose doing that? Bath asked. A grin at the corner of his mouth hinted at the sarcasm to which the others were accustomed. Castro shot a hard look at John. To be frank with you, doctor, he glanced at the others one by one. With all of you, I'm tired of playing things by some unspoken rule some playbook argued by our faceless council. The general lifted his head towards the ceiling when referencing the Phoenix Council and Central Processor. You've been there, Doctor. Major. You've seen what New York, what the world is like. We aren't going to help those on the surface, or prepare a new world for the survivors in the Phoenix Project by being dishonest to our would-be allies and sources of information. Bath nodded affirmatively. He stood and walked over to Cuddy. We also don't have the luxury of taking on every hard luck case and misadventure. Before Cuddy could respond, General Castro turned his wheelchair sharply to face them. He raised a hand the way he often did, reminding them he was in command, implying his authority was more than a rank. I don't blame Cuddy for his efforts to help those people, Castro said, tilting his head at the Major. He obtained a weapon and information about Grand Central Station as an epicenter for trade, Intel. The general paused a second, then looked directly at John. But you're right, Doctor. We must maintain focus, corral resources, build a base of operations with like-minded survivors. Bath was visibly taken aback, orange eyebrows angling, 
his expression flattening, as if to suggest the general put words in his mouth. Before Bath could say anything, Cuddy spoke up. What about these mutants, the Rockheads and Morlocks? Our mission is neither to save nor slay those damaged by... Castro searched for the right words. He glanced over at Dr. Ganaya. Meryl? From your reports, General, the physician said, it would appear these mutations are not simply the byproduct of radiation, disease, or... or... What are you saying? Chang interrupted. I don't... Well, without studying the genetic information firsthand, I can't make any conclusion. Meryl shrank back, placing her index and forefinger to her dark upper lip. Castro smiled briefly, then turned to Cuddy and Bath. What we do know is that the mutants, at least those in and around Manhattan, are factionalized with the Rockheads on one side and the Morlocks on the other. We keep hearing about this mutant gangster Silvio Jones, who controls transportation and the bridges in and out of the island. My goal will be to make it across Brooklyn Bridge and rendezvous with Cuddy and Bath somewhere near City Hall on the other side. From there, we can take Lafayette Street through the city to the United Nations. Castro glanced at Cuddy, then added, in Grand Central Station. Understood, Cuddy nodded. How long will that take? Bath asked. Castro wheeled himself between Muriel and Donna. From the Lower East Side or Battery Park? He closed his eyes, thinking, remembering. Maybe two, two and a half hours on foot. And if we encounter resistance? Cuddy asked. Castro braced himself on the seamless transference module nearby. He stood up. Avoid it. A little later, General Castro was mostly submerged in the coffin. He watched the lid of the chamber overhead, sealing itself, closing him inside. Then, the dull stabbing of pin-sized conduits beneath his scalp. Benjamin closed his eyes, breathed in, out. He let the green stream take him. Brown and gold light washed over the general. Ambient sound waves panned from one ear to the other. His tongue felt lame, his veins alive, blasting with energy that slowly, slowly decayed until... The robot's weighted eyelids opened, the oculus focused. Castro found himself inside a military utility vehicle, his simulacrum in the back, strapped into a center seat. He faced the fogged forward windshield and listened to sounds of thunder nearby. Rain fell all around, but not directly on the vehicle. Awake, someone nearby said. Castro struggled against the seatbelt and restraints, confident the enhanced strength of his mechanized body could free him. En route, someone responded over a walkie-talkie speaker. Castro remembered the voice. A young man, military, John Running Bear. They met briefly in the Brooklyn Park tent city before Benjamin's body abruptly went lifeless, his consciousness ripped through the green stream. Castro heard movement behind him, in the back of the vehicle. He ceased resisting. The passenger door to the military vehicle opened. A man sat in the seat, closed the door. He shook water off a nylon poncho. Lieutenant, Castro uttered, then felt something against the side of his neck. Careful, growled the voice behind the general. 
John Running Bear shifted in the front seat to face Benjamin. He's right, you should be careful. You get excited, Iku is likely to separate your head from the rest of you. Iku? Castro glanced to the side, moved his head only slightly. He saw the steel edge of a sword below his chin, traced it back to its hilt, but couldn't make out more than the clenched fist of the cloaked man wielding it. Lieutenant Running Bear spoke authoritatively. Now, we have some questions for you. I didn't mean to mislead Esther, Castro spoke calmly. I was running out of time, and I... We've taken a good look at you, and it's clear you're not really General Benjamin Castro, the lieutenant explained. I'm no machinist, but it's obvious you're some sort of droid made up to look, act, pretend to be the Israeli general and diplomat. I've never seen this kind of tech before. Not sure if it belongs to our allies. So... Running Bear paused, leaning as close as the seat and console would allow. You're going to answer our questions, or my friend is going to dispatch you with haste. Castro glanced down the blade at the fogged windows. It wasn't long ago he woke up in a similar situation on Governor's Island, with La Signa Bell's translucent wings fluttering nearby, overhead. I understand. Castro tried to reassure them he was no threat, tried to earn their trust. What are you, and where do you come from? Who sent you? Castro nodded slowly. Without hesitation, he explained. This body is a remote-controlled simulacrum, a robot operated by, well, by General Benjamin Castro, who is in an underground facility. The man behind Castro scoffed, making it clear withholding information was not an option. No, really. Castro turned slightly. It's absurd, I know. But not long ago, I, or General Castro, awoke in an underground laboratory. I was... He was tasked to lead a team of explorers to the surface. See, the people living underground, they don't know about the survivors. They've been lied to. They've been led to believe the surface wasn't habitable. John Running Bear's deep-set, brown eyes widened. He looked at the man behind Castro, a swift, unspoken conversation passing between them. Where underground? Running Bear asked Castro. How far? Who sent you? Benjamin looked down at his hands, then back up at the other man. I don't know where it is, or how far, but it's called the Phoenix Project. It's a multi-ethnic, multinational community of survivors from the destruction of the United Nations. Lieutenant Running Bear looked at the man behind him again, then at Castro. There were no survivors of the UN, Iku said, his head near Benjamin's. Phoenix Project. Running Bear said the words with odd familiarity. Yes, Castro shook cautiously in his restraints, his chin barely touching the sharp blade. I know it sounds crazy, but I am General Benjamin Castro. My mind is transferred into... into this machine. How many more? asked the disembodied voice behind Castro. The general turned. There must be at least 3,000 people in the project. Iku groaned. He means, Running Bear said, as if translating for his friend. How many more of these... 
These robots are out there. How do we know they aren't sent by the Chinese or Pakistanis to spy on us? Castro fought the urge to shrug. Your loyalty to the United States is commendable, Lieutenant. But this situation... The general paused, lifting his head towards the windshield. Is obviously bigger than you and me. Bigger than East versus West. A hush fell over the inside of the vehicle. Outside, the rain was letting up. A dull noise emitted from Castro's simulacrum's voice box. I came from a lab under Liberty Island, the general said. But I suspect there are more of these silos of robots scattered across the country. Maybe across the planet. Where I came from, there were four complete simulacrums and parts to repair or retrofit others. Where are the others? asked Running Bear. My team consists of two other men from the Phoenix Project, a law enforcement officer and a scientist. Where are they? Iku insisted. They're in the Phoenix Project, about to port into their bodies on the other side of the river. And the fourth? We destroyed the fourth simulacrum, along with the lab. Why? asked Running Bear. Castro thought back. It seemed like a lifetime ago now. The lab on Liberty Island wasn't unlike the lab in the Phoenix Project, a subsurface silo filled with cross-generational 20th and 21st century technology. The machines were built and upgraded. Others were prototypes, presumably forgotten. All the computer keys used international symbols and standard diacritical marks. The General, Cuddy, and Bath weren't there long enough to determine what the operating system was for the computer mainframe. Donna Chang ported into one of the robot bodies and connected herself to the mainframe. Perhaps she knew more. Maybe much more than she shared with the team. It was evident the lab on Liberty Island had been used before. Castro tried explaining his actions. Someone had been there, had been working on these robots. He gazed down at his body, his hands, the restraints. I didn't know how long ago, but I didn't want to give them the chance to come back and take control of what you stole, Iku finished for him. Castro half-nodded, searching Lieutenant Running Bear's face and posture, trying to determine if he was reaching the man. The laboratory was locked from the outside, Castro continued. That suggested to me, whoever had been there left the facility permanently, or was coming back. I didn't want to give them the option to return, to take control of us, or the mainframe. Running Bear spoke. If these robots, the facilities, are scattered about the planet as you suggest, you still run that risk. Yes, Castro agreed. He reflected on a conversation he and his team had. They parsed the pitfalls of upgrading the machines, something Donna Chang was capable of doing with little explanation. After a long pause, Running Bear scratched his chin. You destroyed the lab. I did, Castro nodded. He felt the blade move ever so slightly. Syria? Iku asked. Nightshade? Esther, the old Israeli matriarch of the tent city, had told Castro something about a terrorist cell named Nightshade. Esther said they took responsibility for the attack on the United Nations, Castro said. Hmm. Perhaps. Running Bear ignored the general and responded to his partner. More likely the Russians. Castro turned, leaned forward. The sword followed him. 
Wait, he said. You think the Russians hit the lab on Liberty Island? That's... He didn't finish, and Running Bear didn't respond. A long moment passed between them as the lieutenant seemed to weigh the general's fantastic story. Something about the soldier reminded Castro of Cuddy. Both were eager and men of action. But the weight around the younger lieutenant's eyes suggested he had seen and experienced things the major knew little about. Rain's letting up, Igu said. The general stared ahead. The fog on the windshield dissipated. Water separated. Look, Castro implied, his tone measured but serious. I know this sounds fantastical, but I'm not here to harm you or these people. I'm here to help, however I can. I'm trying to get across the bridge. Silvio Jones controls the bridge, Iku said. Castro continued. Esther said you could help me. I need to meet up with my friends, to go to the UN, to see firsthand what happened. Castro and Running Bear's eyes met. Each scanned the other, seeking, trying to find trust in a world of unspeakable horror. Running Bear nodded. Let's say I believe you for the moment. Let's say we help you and your friends. Then what? Castro hesitated, unsure what the man was asking or what, if anything, he, Cuddy, or Bath had to offer. What do you want? Shortly after General Castro's trip into the Greenstream, Cuddy and Bath were prepped for their own journey. As he reclined in the coffin, Cuddy heard Ganiah telling him to relax. Then, the chamber closed around him, and the Major tried to do just that. In the quiet before transference into the Greenstream, Cuddy thought of his conversation with Dr. Bath earlier that morning. John mentioned their fathers, the coincidence of their working together at the United Nations, and how Cuddy's father, Mac, had died not long after Dear Midbath's exile. As the needle-thin pipettes pierced Cuddy's muscle tissue and skull, he sorted through details, pieces of a timeline given to him to accept without question. He flashed on a memory, sitting on the floor of the compartment he shared with his parents. There was an announcement by the central processor. On this day, the Shadow Council and citizens of the Phoenix Project pay tribute to the head of the Phoenix Law Division. After many years of faithful service, Colonel Charles McGillicuddy died in the line of duty. Our condolences to his wife, Ava, and son, Leonard. Dana Marsh came to their quarters and sat with Cuddy's mother. From another room, Leonard watched their mouths, saw his mother breaking down in waves, biting her lip until it bled, as if that would keep her strong. Strong for whom, he wondered. For him? Later, Cuddy was told his father had been sick. Mac never told anyone how ill he was. He collapsed unexpectedly at work from an apparent brain hemorrhage. As Cuddy's consciousness spiraled through the green stream, beige light flickered. He thought he heard something. A voice. Leonard. Cuddy? He remembered his father leaving for work that morning. Uniform starched and pressed as always. Mac wore his name tag and rank, but refused to wear the Kevlar plates and rubber padding other officers found necessary. Mac criticized these accoutrements as excessive, 
Cuddy gazed up at his father, who bent down to his level. Mac hugged the boy close, a sign of affection rarely exhibited. The last thing his father said to him, Don't worry, son. You're going to be all right. Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Fire Pit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2020 by Fire Pit Creative Group.